0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy Hero Podcast. We're all about diving into the world of strategy, transformation, and operational excellence. Featuring insights and experiences from some of the most successful leaders in the field, we have the pleasure of talking with people from all walks of life and the role that they've played in change. Today is no different as I'm sitting down with Jay McBain, an accomplished speaker, author, and innovator in the IT industry. He was named channel influencer of the year by channel partners magazine and featured in business reviews top 40 under 40. he has spent his 29 year career in various executive channel sales marketing strategy roles within ibm lenovo autotask and as an analyst for forrester jay is now the chief analyst for global channels at canalis the world's leading analyst firm with a distinct focus on channels partnerships alliances and ecosystems but for today, he is our strategy hero, Jay. It's lovely to meet you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. I just wanted to to start off by saying that uh, Jay is one of the guests who really kind of stood out. I think, Jay, you have a, a really interesting story to share with us today, and and I cannot wait to to get into the the uh, the meat of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think uh, we watch all twenty-seven industries. Uh, We look at obviously the changes uh, in go-to-market and routes to market, but these changes are starting to creep up into the boardroom. Uh, CEOs are talking to us at a level that they never have before, and a level of granularity. And um, you know, what, what used to be just kind of a department over on the side, which was channels or dealerships or agents or franchises or retail. 75% Seventy-five percent of world trade flows indirectly. So you bought your last car from a dealer, you bought your last TV from a retailer, your loaf of bread from a grocer. Every industry runs through channels, but it was always an execution type of department. It was never really a strategic department, and that's what's changing now.
0: And and that's what I'm really looking forward to talking to you about today, Jay. You know, we have a a listenership that I believe is very much focused on on execution but actually it's becoming more imperative as you know our conversations before recording you know have proven to me it's becoming more imperative to to be able to look you know further down down the line and towards the future and I, and I guess that brings me to uh, uh the subject of today's episode um you know when we were talking about what we what we could you know cover in, in the session what we landed on was you know the decade of ecosystems and the subscription era um so something that came up when we were talking, uh, there, there was a quote that I, that I took down, and I really wanted to sort of have this as the starting point for us. You said that every company is, is quickly having to become a tech company regardless of their industry. What does that mean for traditional non-digital enterprises?
1: Yeah, well, the buyer is changing first, and the buyer is, is driving a lot of this. Uh, you know, things that were disconnected in the past, you know, things like your toothbrush and your car and your, uh, your mattress and then in, in business, a lot of the, you know, software and hardware, things that were disconnected are becoming connected. Uh, we're within four quarters now of a millennial buyer, which by quantity and by budget will be the majority buyer in every industry. And so that means something different for pharmaceuticals than it does banking and insurance means something different for automotive and manufacturing. But the one thing we know, there's a new psychology of the buyer. There's a new uh, behaviors uh, in the journey that that, that are on. And and companies are going to have to serve that differently and, and more digitally than ever before. But the one thing that's jumping out more than anything else is we're facing off now against an integration first buyer. And so... What used to be important, like price or service or support or your brand reputation, what's number one in importance now is it needs to integrate in either my life, you know, as a consumer, or it needs to integrate into my business as a B2B buyer. But your ability to integrate with others, play well in the sandbox is more important than ever before.
0: Should, should people be worried about this this shift, um, you know, you talk about about an integration first mindset. Should should leaders, should CEOs, be concerned that, you know, the landscape of just running a business is significantly going to change in in this you know this this future horizon?
1: Yeah, and let me tell a story. Um, you know, if you're a leader of a car company today, and, and you've been in business for over a hundred years. You know, 99% of your new products go through a dealer channel. So, I mean, you've always had kind of a partnership strategy there because those are third party, you know, entrepreneurial, locally owned kind of businesses. But it's pretty singular or, or you know, we'll call them um, uh, pretty, um, pretty well understood in terms of how those relationships work. Uh, What's changing though, if you're that leader of a car company, there's 63 major car companies that make 365 kinds of car. Uh, What's changing uh, driven really by the new buyer is go back to this integration first. Last year, Apple, when they did their biggest, you know, big iPhone launch, like they do every year, put up a graphic that said 79% of people wouldn't buy a car unless it had Apple CarPlay. They didn't mention Android Auto, but I think they meant to mention that as well. But The fact of the matter is integration first, you could lose four fifths of your buyer walking into your dealership if you don't have the right technology integration. And that used to be just a little tablet on the middle of your dashboard, you know, running your radio and maybe a couple other things, but this is now handing over your speedometer and your climate control and every pixel in front of the driver and passengers to big tech. So that's one part of the story. The second part of the story is as the world goes electric, 2032, 2035, There's not going to be 365 kinds of battery and motors like there are engines today. It's going to consolidate down to probably three massive manufacturers of those. The only difference between the wheelbase and the height between a pickup truck and a sedan. But the fact of the matter is that's going to consolidate. And so everything in front of the driver and everything below the driver now becomes a technology integration. So you're a leader in a $4 trillion industry that's always kind of done things a different way. And now you're in front of this integration first buyer and your technology alliances and your ability to be almost a technology company is, is whether you're gonna win or lose. And, and for that CEO, here's the nervousness, You know, 20 years from now when it goes past uh, the uh, pixels in front of the driver and the motors and, and, and things like that, it's transportation as a service where nobody actually owns a car, but we get served up with the right kind of car at the right time. And that's just a subscription consumption business. And they're at risk of becoming sheet metal companies. And and I always remind people in technology that I used to sell PCs at, at IBM and Lenovo. And by wrapping other people's technology in plastic and metal, I never made a profit in 68 quarters to start my career. 17 years, I never reported a profit and I was wrapping 11 other companies in technology, I had to you know, get the raw material supply chain, I had to build it, I had to ship it, I had to distribute it, I had to spend more money when it didn't sell, I had to warranty it. It was very hard to wrap other people's technology and take all the risk. And again, it wasn't profitable. Uh, car companies are facing the same thing when you're wrapping other people's technology. You know, it's not a lot of profit when you're just a sheet metal company But you have to build the thing. You have to ship the thing and sell the thing and warranty the thing. We had a little $5 chip for gamers that um, we built into some of our PCs. That chip company was called NVIDIA, which because of this future of cars and and AI is now a trillion dollar company. What to us was a $5 little chip is now one of the biggest companies in the world. That's the difference. And if if you're a CEO and I could talk about pharmaceuticals, I can talk about banking. There's a story in all 27 industries where this move to technology is perilous because big tech is threatening. And obviously, the ecosystem surrounding your customer and and your changing buyer could change your very multi-trillion dollar industry underneath it.
0: When you are talking to uh CEOs at uh Canalis, regardless of industry, what's that what's is there a consistent thread that goes throughout? Because obviously, you know, CEOs are in a role in that role for a reason. You know, they understand risks, they understand the opportunities of threats, and and they have the assumptions about their market, but that for those who are not mobilizing right now. What are the sort of conversations and what's the common thread that comes across when you're having you know, those, those sort of frank uh, discussions?
1: Yeah, I mean, CEOs, you know, are, are employed to drive shareholder value. You know, that is first and foremost in terms of their job description and, and shareholder value uh, to them. You know, they have board members and they have, you know, activist investors that are reminding them on a daily basis you know, you need to start selling your toothbrush in a subscription model because Wall Street likes that better. It's more sticky, it's more recurring, it's more predictable, and it doesn't matter what industry and what you build. Your, your lawn tractors, your generators, whatever you build needs to be a subscription. It needs to have technology integrations. It needs to kind of be in this new model. So that's kind of, you know, step number one. Step number two, though, is we're not, we know more, way more about the buying cycle than we ever have before. And we've been forced to kind of research this at the nth degree but for people who are buying for example in business to business who are in a considered purchase you know they're buying you know something that's expensive and and obviously um uh complicated you know in in their business there's 28 definable moments that they go through to become smart as a buyer and with the best marketing in the world if you're running super bowl ads and you sponsor formula one and you're doing all the great things in the best marketing in the world, you might enter into three or four of those moments. This is where consumer behavior becomes business behavior. Those are the same 28 moments when you buy a car. You know, you're watching YouTube and you're reading Motor Trend magazine. You're talking to your neighbors and friends. You're on social media. You're not going to go on 365 test drives. So you're narrowing things down. It's not till like moment 20 that you might actually go to the manufacturer and configure your car on their website they've missed the first 19 moments, and they may have missed the opportunity for you to come. So who owns the first 19 moments? And if those owners of those moments are not partners of yours and willing to share that data, in a post-cookie world, you can't just go buy the data anymore. So for what marketing used to be, you know, this third-party data and buying it from Facebook and Google and other places, it doesn't exist anymore. So if I'm not partnered with Motor Trend Magazine and that guy on YouTube that's racing a Tesla, and if I'm not partnered with, you know, in social media and all the other 28 moments, you know, I'm gonna miss 24 of those 28 moments and I'm gonna be losing deals in my sleep. This goes for every CEO in every industry. So partnering strategy, 82% of them now are increasing their funding and their strategy around partnerships, saying that I need to surround my customer According to McKinsey, who advises all the Fortune 500 boards, according to McKinsey, there's seven partners now that the, this new buyer trusts. So what used to be a single throat to choke or that single trusted advisor, or that single car dealership, there's a whole set of people now around the table that are adding different value. And if those, the majority of those seven people aren't endorsing us along the way or creating less friction, we're gonna lose a lot more deals uh, in our sleep than, than we ever have before. Again, the world changes for every one of your line of business executives that report to you the selling changes when 75% of this new buyer doesn't want to meet a human anytime during the process. And that includes, you know, buying a $50,000 car that includes buying a million dollars worth of software that they're okay. Having a humanless experience, which means partnerships that surround every other moment become critical. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think what um as you were talking there, Jay, I think what, what stood out to me is, you know, we uh <clears throat> for those for those of us who are in a in a B2B uh environment, you know, we will look to the likes of um Forrester and we'll look to the likes of Gartner for our advice. And Gartner talked a lot about um you know that there are 14 pieces of content that will, you know, people will interact with typically in a B2B uh journey. But what you're saying there about the 28 um sort of 28 moments is that you need to throw that out because you got to think about, you know, as a millennial, you're looking for more data sources, you're looking for more influences before you actually get to that point of parting with with your dollars. And I think that that to me, when we were initially talking, was was one of those light bulb moments that made me think, oh, okay, <laughs> like this isn't the same ballpark we're in anymore. This is completely, this is a completely different sport. Um and I, and I think that it's it to me, it's very important that that our listeners. You know understand that this isn't just a oh, okay you're a b2b company and you should probably have maybe an affiliate or a reseller no no this is a complete you know redesign of of how you're looking at going going to market so um that kind of leads me in nicely into into i guess my second key question for you jay is you know what are the processes and programs that that people need to have in place to be able to modernize their business then in this new sort of uh, uh ecosystem that you're you're talking about
1: yeah it's a great question and we can just go back to the phases of that customer journey so you know you're you're talk about 14 different pieces of content that adds into the 28 and there's 14 kind of non-content moments mm-hmm. so yeah they, they'll read an ebook, um you know read a white paper maybe ma- read a magazine article but at the same time they're listening to this podcast at, at the same time, they're going to an event in Las Vegas and having hallway conversations. They're talking to their colleagues and neighbors and friends. They're, they're moving through these moments. And again, it's very unpredictable because you know you, you can't just ask somebody about their 28 moments, but as a leader, you gotta kind of grab all of those watering holes. And for any industry and for any buyer type, it's the law of a few. If you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, I did it for the entire technology industry, and I looked at $4.7 trillion and about a million partners, and I asked them what they read and where they go and who they follow, and you'd think, oh my God, there's 10 million people, there's millions of things. There isn't. There's 85 magazines total, global. There's 218 events. There's 67 associations. There's 100 podcasts they listen to. There's uh, 143 social groups and Slack channels and Discord channels and subreddits, there's 14 spheres of influence around that buyer. There's some that you can drive content through to and with, and there's some that just need to be influenced. So when you're building programs, back to your question, you know, in those early 28 moments, do I have an affiliate program, an ambassador program, an affinity program, an advocate program, an influencer program? So here's 10 different partner types in those first 28 moments. Of people that want to earn money differently, and there's non-monetary moments. You know, baseball cap and a front row an event, or you know, a high five or exposure, or you know, a, a Starbucks moment. You know, five dollar Starbucks card and what somebody would do. So we're not talking spending millions of dollars with these partners, but it's recognizing what they do and quantifying what they do to get that buyer to the to your you know decision. And if you can do that properly, and you know that ebook has a quantitative value, you want to rush out to the author of that ebook who has trust built into their watering holes and say, "Hey, can you write three more? Here's you know 5,000 dollars. If the next three ebooks have the same return, you're going to rush out with10,000 dollars. You're going to keep doing that until you run some ad in the Olympics together or, or, or in the Super Bowl." So those are the types of things that we're getting better at today. Move on to the point of sale. Marketplaces, digital marketplaces, which serve these new buyers are growing at 86% compounded at the moment. We just had a security company CrowdStrike this week say they're selling a billion dollars through AWS's marketplace alone. So in B2B, how these buyers are putting together these seven layer solutions, including services, are happening on digital marketplaces. So at the point of sale, 24% of those marketplace Deals are actually your partners clicking buy on behalf of the customer. So how do you figure out a world? How much goes indirect? Today, I said 75% of world trade. In technology, it's 73.1%. I mean, it's high in every industry. Um, You know, it's almost 100% in pharmaceuticals. It's almost 100% in auto. You know, you kind of look through um, all the different worlds. you got to figure out at that point of sale. You know, direct, you know, Dell used to be a direct company, and you might have bought a Dell computer direct in the 1990s. Well, yep. Dell is almost 60% indirect now that uh, you know they're serving all the markets. You know, People in the United States might've bought car insurance from Geico. Well, now Geico sells more insurance for agents and brokers. So there's so many stories here of at the point of sale, making sure you're reducing friction and you've got a cash register where your customer wants to buy in the way they want to buy. And if you've converted to a subscription consumption model, that's only the first 30 days with the customer. So you've got the customer to the dance, you've got them on the dance floor, and now you've got to keep them dancing all night long in a customer for life scenario. And so who are the partners implementing and in integrating? I mean, the integration first buyer, who's managing all this, who's there surrounding the customer forever to make sure that your solution is sticky and you stay there for life. And so this is kind of the, you know, do you have programs built in all three of those phases? Do you have 20 different partner types that surround the customer that are competing for those seven trusted seats? Do you have big enough vision to look at what they read and where they go and covering kind of the broader ecosystem around your buyer? Because I'll say that 99% of the CEOs we talk to don't.
0: Why, Why do you think that is? Does budget influence, does the size of the business influence
1: well, I think it's the m- amount of transformation. They're going through demographic changes at the same time of firmographic changes at the same time of staring down macro issues around the world and a, a war, war in the Europe, a war in the Middle East, inflation out of control, the cost of money, the free money over 14 years has kind of dried up. I mean, talk about a, a nexus of, of pressure from everywhere, but all of them can point northward. And, and if you grab the global Fortune 500, And look at you know apple as the most valuable company microsoft is the second most valuable i talked about nvidia at a trillion google and um
0: amazon and others
1: alibaba they're all ecosystem companies they all have you know hundreds of thousands microsoft has half a million partners they recognize the surrounding of seven apple became who they are because of the app store and millions of developers making this phone in your hand or the computer you're on better so to get valuation which again is your number one kpi as a ceo to get valuation you've got to be uh, have a surround strategy around your customer you've got to build the technology alliances for that integration first buyer you have to build the strategic and business alliances you have to build those channels before during and after the transaction this is a much bigger problem than just having that department that runs dealerships off to the side or the department that runs the reseller channel. This is now a corporate strategy of whether we succeed or not, you know, and and we're still around in in 20 years. And it's, how do we get to that higher valuation? We've got to, you know, change our corporate strategy around that surround or the decade of the ecosystem as I coined
0: it. So, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to challenge a little bit, not because I, I disagree with what you're saying. I do agree. I can just imagine, I, I can think of ex-colleagues that would probably challenge, you know, with, with this line of argument, which is, okay, well, I'm a great direct sales person. You know, I'm really good at inside sales. I have no need to be able to to work outside of my bubble. Like I can just continue to deliver the MRR that I'm delivering. How, how do you deal with, let's say, the more reluctant uh, participants in this sort of change when you, when you go out and, and you work with large organizations? How do you overcome those people that are resistant, whether it's through fear or through, through just, you know, misunderstanding what this bigger picture is?
1: Yeah, so over 80% of direct sellers last year missed their quota, and we're on path to actually exceed that number this year. Uh, the 75% number of the reckless, you know, kind of um, uh, buying journey, that wasn't my number. That was Gartner's number. So whichever, and you know, Forrester has their own numbers, Canalis has our numbers, McKinsey has their numbers. I mean, you can go read any survey you want, or you can just talk to your neighbors and friends and your children if they're older and, and ask them. Uh, the fact of the matter is the best sellers today and the ones that are hitting quota recognize just inside that there are a surrounding set of influences around your buyer. It might be the committee. If you're B2B, you know, you got the CFO in there, you got the CIO in there, you got all, you know, all these committee members and a good seller will always say, you know, I, if I can't get them to endorse, at least I want to remove that friction. And if I can surround themselves that I can get that committee to make a decision, but understanding that every one of those committee members together, get to that decision are also getting smart. They're reading everything they can. They're doing Google searches. Now they're using generative AI mm-hmm. to go ask ChatGPT and Bard what they should do. And so surrounding each of those committee members understand there's influence. Is Accenture in talking to them? Is uh, McKinsey at the board level or, or Boston consulting there? Is Gartner writing magic quadrants that you know are affecting the decision? Is um, you know, is there local consultants, the guy's brother-in-law or sister-in-law in there, you, you recognize as a seller that, you know, it's not point A to point B and selling today isn't linear. You win and lose deals at, at times in your sleep. And the reason for that is this kind of reckless behavior that if somebody can avoid a human for the first 24 of those 28 moments. the auto industry, I mean, they force you into a dealership and they force you to sit there for eight hours, you know, as they get you a deal. The fact of the matter is you already know because you downloaded the invoice price, what the dealer's paying for the car, you've already downloaded the back end rebates for this month. So, you know, what's getting kicked back at the end, you already know within a hundred dollars, what the car is going to be. So you pay a hundred dollars more just to avoid that dealership moment and have them ship the car to your driveway and hand you the keys. So now replicate that in every B2B environment. And that's kind of where we're at is let's not go through the old model, but I I do enjoy having somebody that can walk me through, you know, key steps of that buying journey. I do enjoy good marketing because they're helping me get smarter. Mm. And I do know that it's never a hundred percent. There's shades of gray in every single um, moment and every single component of this And, and any direct seller that understands the chaos, Theory that goes into a singular sale are the ones making their numbers, and they're very partner friendly.
0: Yeah, yes, some of the uh, some of the most successful sales reps that that I've known, they embrace partners. Um, maybe not to the scale that that we're talking about today, but I think that kind of leads me on to uh, my next question: Is you you know you you've gone on this journey yourself um, to go from Lenovo uh all the way through an ibm through to where you are today you obviously are very good at sort of seeing into you know way ahead of the, of the bell curve how how did you adapt how did you like what, what were the light bulb moments for you in your career where you started to sense the tides shifting and 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 that channel was becoming more and more of a power
1: yeah, I got, um, you know, my first taste of it was at IBM. And, you know, here was a company that, uh, you know, during the 70s and you know, early 80s and stuff was the biggest company in the world and, and on top of the Fortune 500 and unstoppable. And governments were starting to tear it down as a monopoly and, and things like that. So it was kind of the big tech at the time. And guess what? So in 1996, when I was there a couple of years, we defeated Gary Kasparov at of Chess. It was the first AI, first time a grandmaster's ever lost to a computer. It was a turning point in AI. About 15 years later, uh, defeated Jeopardy, which was a generative AI problem. You know Ken Jennings and all this celebrity, it killed them. And it was like, and that was a long time ago. And that was kind of the first part of the AI pitch, but IBM made a channel mistake. It said, let's productize AI We'll have one skew in distribution that can cure cancer. We'll have a skew that can predict nuclear explosions. We'll have a skew that can predict the weather and we're going to buy the weather channel for the data. And and here's a product that's going to change the world. And guess what? It was never a product. And today, even, you know, when you're seeing generative AI, it's not a product, it's a feature. And instead of going to market and walking over to salesforce.com and getting Watson inside Salesforce, they went to market directly with it. And I I mean, a channel could sell the SKU, but that was in the channel department again, the dealership department. It wasn't strategic. And every player today, Microsoft investing in open AI, Google investing, AWS just making a big investment last week, all the big players now in AI, it's all an ecosystem. And you're layers and layers of an ecosystem to win that deal. So at IBM taught me right away that they could have been the outsized winner in AI, and they went to market wrong with it. So Salesforce wouldn't have had to build Einstein and Einstein GPT, it'd be Watson inside. And your Tesla car would be Watson inside. it will be a little sticker like it, like Intel. Your toothbrush would have Watson inside. They should have viewed it as an embedded, white labeled, uh, integrated technology that made everything you buy better and not viewed it as some product skew like selling a PC. So talk about a learning lesson there at IBM. I I founded a company and raised money. I understood the power of the partnerships to get my product as an ISV into B2B buyers. I didn't have the budget to do any kind of significant marketing, but I understood through the community and through a grassroots bottoms up through those thousand watering holes. We found our first 150 clients, worked our way to product fit and sales and marketing fit as a founding, you know, writing checks out of my checking account. Then at Forester, I got to really meet the world leaders in every industry and have this, you know, financial conversation, banking and insurance conversation, have the pharmaceutical conversations, have the oil and gas and the manufacturing conversations. And guess what? It all drew drew down to this world of transactional channels on one side who sold 75% of their products. And then the non-transactional channels who surrounded their customer at all stages of the journey and understanding that, you know what, on this non-transactional side, I don't have a department. I don't have success. I don't have anybody with those skills, including my CRO, including my CMO. They don't have the right skills to surround my buyer.
0: I need to rethink
1: even in my own organization going forward.
0: That is, uh, yeah, the, the IBM note you made there is, yeah it's absolutely spot on and and as you were going through you could probably for, you know for those who can see the video version of this you can you know you would have seen my smile as as jay kind of was dropping the the penny for me um <laughs> thank you so i there's a lot there's a lot to digest here for our listeners um if you had to i know it's doing a disservice to obviously you know th- the depth of work needed here but if you had to explain in a couple of steps how someone can go about mapping out their partner ecosystem how would they do that
1: yeah it's actually um it's relatively um it's simpler than it sounds you know behind me i've got a venn diagram with millions of partners and 20 different types and you know they change by industry they change by buyer type they change by geography change by segment of the market from smb up through enterprise they change whatever product type and then by delivery model so You know, there's millions upon millions of permutations. And so if you looked at it that way, it sounds kind of complex. But if you actually look at it upside down and say, start with your your buyer
0: Hmm.
1: and start asking good questions of your buyer, the ones that bought for you and the ones that chose not to buy from you, if you could get the intel and just ask them those three questions again. What do you read? Where do you go? And who do you follow? I know as a buyer, you're getting smart. I know you're spending all these 28 moments. Can you just name off you know, some namespaces and places? Oh, you listen to the Strategy Hero podcast. Very cool. How many of your buyers came across the Strategy Hero podcast? And as you start to score these things, you start to get to your watering holes. And I mentioned there's 14 different types of watering holes. What podcast? Because by the way, 12% of people love podcasts. Hmm. And maybe 88% of people will listen if it's the right topic, the right buyer, but it's not their primary source. of people like email, 35% of people like face-to-face, like an event. So go through the psychology of all of this. And do I have all the right watering holes covered? And then once you've got that, that should be on every one of your wall. There should be a one-pager PowerPoint slide kind of going through all of these spheres of influence. Go find your own 200, 300, 500 watering holes that drive your end buyer. And then double-click on each one because they're all digital. And they can tell you who spoke at that event, who sits on the board of that association that they love, who's the host of the podcast, who are the weekly guests, who's active on those social media groups. You can start answering those questions and you can start scoring the people. All of a sudden, this James guy comes up and he's doing the podcast and he's speaking at this event and he's over here, he's over there. All of a sudden, you're up to 200 points in the way that I scored you. Mm. You might be the top 100. You might be a Kim Kardashian to my buyer. (laughs) And if that's the case, I want you as my partner. And and we got to figure out a way together. I got to build you a program and I got to have a one plus one equals three where we can work together to, again, value the buyer. Like the whole point is to build better outcomes and to, uh, you know, to have a better experience out the other end. But if we can do that together and do it, you know, at a higher level, and again, the buyer comes back to us and buys more and says more nice things about us this is the energy and who are the other 99 james who are the top 100 people i should also have that on my wall so there's two new posters for your wall this is what my buyers this is where they are and this is who they trust and these are the top 100 most influential people that surround them in all these watering holes and if everyone and if you start focusing on that community if you start focusing on each of those hundred people and if you don't get endorsements at least you're reducing friction. Hopefully. And and you're starting to be more um, visible in each of those watering holes, then you start to get success. If you can monitor, measure, and manage those things, that's the start of becoming a partnership-friendly, you know, technology-friendly company that um, that has better surround strategy than any, anyone else.
0: So, talking directly to current CEOs and future CEOs that are listening today. um, If a future CEO has any sort of characteristics that that you can pin down, related back to the partner ecosystem, what would those characteristics be you're looking for?
1: Yeah, well, first characteristic would be very detailed, you know, about your buyer. Um, You know, every CEO, You know, rather than just knowing, you know, one of my buyers is Larry in the white van. Another buyer is Mary who, you know, likes her Peloton. I mean, whatever, you know, ICP and all stuff, that doesn't matter anymore. Your buyer as a whole, your TAM, your total target addressable market, your SAM, your service available market, and your SOM, your serviceable, obtainable market. Every CEO on the planet starts has to sound like a SaaS company now. And I need to know that I'm after, a, you know, this many billions of dollars in my TAM. I need to know the cash registers of how all that works and making sure that if I want to sell hamburgers, I've got a, a restaurant on every street corner. If I want to sell donuts or cups of coffee, I mean, I know the franchise of getting a cash register to my to my customer, whichever that may be. And B2B, that's marketplaces and indirect sales and, and resellers and things. That's the, you know, that's the second major piece of that and in the end you want to know that that buyer that you understand where they are and how they're moving through their first 28 moments and I'm building a company very friendly in in the ecosystem around my customer because I can't cheat anymore I can't just go buy the stuff they're doing on the internet I can't go and spend money to you know when they're a product on the internet to go and intercept that I got to do the hard work And and I got to send people out that can make these partnerships. It's still a human-based model. My Gen AI model is not going to talk to your Gen AI model. My robot will talk to yours. It's a human-based model still, but it's one at scale. I'm not out at a trade show trying to meet 10,000 people and get a bunch of business cards in a fishbowl. I'm there with 75 LinkedIn printouts of people that I have to intercept in the hallway to have a five-minute conversation so we can have a deeper meeting the next week. And and I need to start doing this at scale, and it's less about the product now that I have an integration first buyer. It's more about everything that surrounds that buyer.
0: So, what are the what are the what are the three changes that that this CEO needs to make?
1: Well, I think uh, get deeper into go to market and routes to market than you ever have been, and it's more than just cash registers it's 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 surrounding your buyer that's that's number 1 number 2 is starting to think about the future of your industry and your company within your industry you know at some point in time big tech has plans to start taking over the experience of your buyer and it'll start as an integration it might start as that little ipad that sits on the middle of a screen in your car but when you have to hand over the speedometer and you have to hand over the climate control and every other function to the passenger and drivers, that's when you've already lost. But at the same time, you're never going to compete with Google and Microsoft for engineers. You're not going to get them to move to Detroit or move to Germany or move to Japan. So you're not going to build a better operating system, probably. So in this world of alliances, in this world of working together with others, how do you make sure you get your fair share of that? and that the profit and the revenue opportunity in your industry doesn't start to leak as every company becomes a tech company there's always a risk in tech for the uh, hundreds of thousands of companies that we watch every day there's always a risk of a big tech company adding a feature over a weekend or a company taking your entire product category and giving it away for free you know, if it's the Microsoft Netscape story, which now became the Microsoft team story, which Europe just shut down, then it's the Microsoft security story. I mean, I'm picking on Microsoft, but I can pick on any one of the big tech companies. The fact of the matter is your entire company could become a feature that's given away for free to every consumer on the planet. And that's dangerous. When a phone, comp- when, uh, phone companies like Apple and Google have three and a half billion users, and soon to be four and a half billion users. Uh, if they decide to give something away for free as a service, that could collapse. You know, that's news, that's fitness, that's TV, that's movies. This is industry-wide threats. But you don't beat big tech head on. You actually beat them through the integrations. Microsoft beat IBM on a licensing deal and an ability for an open system to be run on on a particular layer. So there's there's craftiness here in terms of getting your fair share mm-hmm. as your buyer changes. And I think for all industries and all CEOs, you got to think of, of of a with a two-through and with strategy with tech and not a head-on battle face to face.
0: Yeah, I think um what it is thank you. Um what's coming to mind as as you were talking there is I remember some research, um, that I was reading last, last year. and, And it talked about how, um, you know, like you said earlier, direct sales were going down, but reseller or partner sales were, you know, continuing to grow quarter after quarter after quarter. Um, so I guess, I guess the, the underlying, um, issue that I'm sensing is that there has to be, Organized organizational change, um, whether that is a mindset change or or, or potentially that is change in terms of your hiring strategy. Um, What are the what and and who are the 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 hires that you would need in your organization to be able to make this change?
1: Yeah, actually, in every department, it goes back to our sales conversation that we had. Mm -hmm. You know, that direct seller can recognize the seven people surrounding the customer. And either in getting endorsements or neutralizing them if i'm in marketing the same thing the 28 the battle for the 28 moments four of those we're going to try to win 24 of them we're going to try to partner on and so we're going to try to grab all 28 moments and get that customer toss if i'm in cx recognizing again that you know the customer may be delighted they might be upset but there's seven people in their daily kind of doing the managed services. They're doing the implementation work, integration work, consulting work, design work, architecture, on and on and on. If I understand those seven, if those seven can help us and they're not blaming us and we're working together to resolution in CX, it changes everything. It's, it's partner friendliness in product building your product out of the gate. Now again, products, at least 10 years ago, used to be a franchise model. We need product fit. It's kind of the software as a service as it grew up. We need to get product fit. And then second, we need a sales and marketing engine direct that's repeatable. And once we have those two things, then we can franchise it. It's like watching McDonald's, Ray Kroc, the movie. The first half is let's get the 25-cent hamburger and the whole process of the kitchen working. And then the second half of the movie is let's get a restaurant on every street corner and own the real estate underneath them. Business today in products Let's get the integrations first. So partnering
0: starts at day one. It doesn't start later on. So, is there someone in the business that would be responsible? Do you have a team of of partner relationship managers, for instance, or is it something that you know the marketing the marketing team are going out and talking to um, influencers and affiliates? Is, is it the salesperson's talking to a reseller, like? what is that it it, do you need to hire anyone or is it more of a mindset change
1: well what most companies are doing is moving to a cpo a chief partner officer so the different swim lanes underneath that the dealership or the resale department or the retail department that is the set of cash registers now reports to a more senior partner executive but then that partner Officer actually works with the CMO on those 28 moments, builds out all the what they read and where they go and how to do that partnering moment and build the program around it and the underlying technology to measure it. They work with the CRO, they work with the CXO, they work with the head of products, they had work with operations and finance. Uh pretty much, you know, HR. I mean, they're working everywhere, but it's all dotted line. You know, it's not one of these empires that a million people go work for the CPO but they have people that are coordinated to bring, because the one thing about partners is they're not standalone. A partner who's helping you get the customer to the dance could very well be that partner that gets them on the dance floor, could very well be that partner that keeps them renewing every 30 days forever, could be that alliance partner that's co-developing and co-innovating with you to make your product even better, one plus one equals three, could be that partner that's building out business and strategic alliances, so if you're working with a big global system integrator like Accenture with 721,000 people, they could be all six partner types on any given day. They have to report into a single structure to make sure that it's not disjointed and you're not sending you know, 10 different people to talk to them on any given day. So you have to have an organized approach. The same thing over if you're gonna partner up with Apple or Google on, on a product, you can't be just sending a bunch of people um, in kind of random sequence there's got to be an overall strategy and there's got to be help for each of those departments to build that kind of culture from the ground up and understanding where the north star is i mean we're trying to become a trillion dollar valued company that's the north star that's the ceo's only job so how do i get the right coordination among all my direct reports who might be the best marketing sales cx people in the world but how do i coordinate that they're doing the completeness of their job given this new buyer, given this new environment, given this uh, you know, the, the worlds of changes that are going on.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like uh if I can put a label on it, it, it comes down to alignment and, and, and communication. If if you can't do those two things. And I guess to our listeners, that's that goes across a lot of the things that you're doing in your day jobs. If you don't have alignment then and, and you can't communicate one another effectively, then it doesn't matter. If your true north or your north stars, as Jay Jay said, is to make you know a trillion dollars, it doesn't matter if you don't have everyone aligned moving towards that goal. Um Jay, I wanted to uh I wanted to just say thank you so much for today. It's been an absolute pleasure to to talk with you. And um, uh, I'm sure our listeners have plenty of food for thought here. Um, just in closing, <clears throat> if there is one golden nugget that you could offer to our listeners today, um, in regards to in regards to the the ecosystem, what would it be?
1: Every company is becoming a tech company. Every professional services firm in every industry is also becoming a tech industry, tech company. So, digital agencies, seventy eight percent of them now are tech services companies, because that's where the money is. There is eight accountants, there's 300,000 accounting CPA firms around the world. 81% of them now self report as tech services companies. You have to go to page four of their website to see they'll do your taxes or accounting work as well. Everyone is converting into tech because that's where the money is and the transformation dollars, they're trying to earn one of those seven seats at the table. So the next time you go and visit a client, if they allow you to flip backwards in the guest book, Every name that's signing into that company's uh, headquarters, 80% of them are talking tech. And if you don't know who these people are, you you need to start finding out who they are. And if you find out, you know, in those 28 moments and, uh, you know, in all the work you're doing, you're going to start to find that there's a team involved. And if you could get into more seats and know more people, it's not competitive. It's actually complementary. It's a Venn diagram. There's going to be obviously overlaps, but it's a team sport now. Nothing's direct in terms of sales or marketing. Nothing's direct anymore, you know, in terms of linear. Everything's a team sport, and you just understand that, um, and and you can map it and, and get very detailed on how you're going to actually do that from an action tactics perspective is get better as a company.
0: Thank you. Um so there you have it everyone. That is uh, Jay McBain with his decade of ecosystems and the subscription error. Jay, um as is customary on, on the podcast, uh, I'd like to just you know share share how people can get in touch with our guests. Um can you just confirm that your your LinkedIn is just Jay McBain? <laughs> That's all you need to look for on the URL. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got
1: three screens going here. So um, if you want to send me a LinkedIn message, if you want to send me a tweet, if you want to send me a Facebook message, an email, uh, it doesn't matter. I've got them all listed publicly. Um, happy to answer a question if I can, or point you to where I, I might have rhymed off a number and, and where I might have got that number from.
0: Thank you so much, Jay. Um, so there you have it, everyone. Today's uh, strategy hero has been Jay McBain, and thank you again for listening. Thanks, Jay. Thank